0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to my Bible study this evening. This is our second week that we're doing it in this format on YouTube, uh, where after a couple of my friends and family members will join in a Zoom session to fellowship a little bit afterwards. So tonight we are in Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 to 30. And as I said, this is the second week in the book of Philippians. So before we start, I would like to open in in a word of prayer. My Almighty God, Heavenly Father, I ask, Lord, that you will guide the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart, that it will be acceptable in your sight, my Lord and my Redeemer. And Father, I ask that you will open the hearts and minds of everyone listening to this message, that they will receive the message that you would want to place on their hearts. I ask this in your precious and wonderful and powerful name. Jesus Christ. Amen. So as a quick review of our previous study last week, just as a recap, Paul is the main author of this letter in the book of Philippians and his protege, Timothy, they together wrote this letter to the Philippian church. We noted that the tone of the letter is a friendly tone and you can clearly see a distinction between the tone of this letter as compared to Paul's letter to the Corinthians or the Galatians, for example. In verses 1 to 18 that we dealt with last week, Paul and Timothy warmly greet the Philippian church. Paul then reveals to them that he constantly keeps them in prayer, and he is thankful when he thinks about them. Paul then starts to reflect upon his imprisonment, um, and we'll see that later on in this study, that he is in prison, And he wants the Philippian church to know that God has used this imprisonment for the advancement of the gospel. The fact that God can take a situation that we deem hopeless and use it to accomplish something good for his kingdom reminds us of Romans 8 verse 28, where Paul wrote, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. The key points that we dealt with last week were number one. We need to love and trust God in any circumstance. Number two, we need to be faithful and keep on trusting him during bad situations. Number three, that God can use the bad situations for good. And number four, the good is for his purpose. So it's not for our benefit, but for God's purpose. So we once again saw that we need to be eternally minded. We need to have a more strategic perspective in terms of God's kingdom in terms of his will in our lives, and in terms of eternity. Paul had this eternal mindset, and we saw this in the last couple of verses we handled in our last study, where Paul declared that even though there were people preaching the gospel out of selfish ambition and not sincerity, that he was actually glad that the gospel was still being preached. You see, Paul worried more about people's eternal salvation than anything else. Of course, he said, if they preached anything Contrary to the gospel, Paul obviously would have been the first one to take them on about it. And we know this from his other letters in the New Testament. We know the sort of character that, that Paul had. So today we will finish chapter one. So let's not waste any more time and let's read from verse 19. And as always, I read from the New Kings James Version. But you can follow in any translation that you want. Verse 19. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the spirit of Jesus Christ. So just as Paul told them that he kept them, the Philippian church, in other words, in his prayers. Likewise, he acknowledges that they've kept him in their prayers. They've also kept him in their prayers. They were apparently praying for his deliverance. Now, there are two views held by different commentators on what this prayer from deliverance was from. One group of commentators believe that this deliverance referred to uh, his deliverance from prison and the second group believe that the deliverance is referring to an ultimate deliverance in the sense of eternal salvation. And what Paul does is he does not specifically say which one it is. It is actually quite possible that Paul wrote this ambiguously on purpose because he just spoke about his physical imprisonment in the previous verses and now he will go And focus on eternity in the next couple of verses. He is actually going to reveal his thoughts on his life versus death. And his preference in the verses to follow. We'll read about that. But in any case. Whether for temporal or eternal deliverance. Paul says that he is confident. That he will be delivered through their prayer. And the supply of the Holy Spirit. So as believers. We need to remember of. And not underestimate the power of prayer. It is a powerful tool and gift. That God has given us in order to communicate directly with him. We don't need any intercessor other than Jesus Christ. We need to continually pray for each other as well. And I can personally testify that the prayers of others do help. And I've experienced this in the past. And I'm also currently experiencing this. There is power in prayer. In any case, secondly, Paul mentions prayer and the Holy Spirit as reasons for his deliverance. The Holy Spirit will help us and guide us through any situation. Jesus told his disciples in John 14, verse 16 to 18. And I read, he said, and I will pray the father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. So the helper there is in capital letters and that's referring to the Holy Spirit. And verse 17, it says the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. So as born again believers, we have God's Holy Spirit or the helper in us. Now Paul continues with with this train of thought in verse 20. So let's read. According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always. So now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, this is how, how any born-again believer should be, be thinking. By the words, my earnest ex- expectation and hope, Paul is making a statement of his complete faith in Jesus Christ. It's not the weak hope. It's the same sure hope every believer has of the eternal salvation. He has the sure faith that you will be ashamed in nothing. God will not let him down. And he goes on to say, but with all boldness as always. By saying this, Paul is saying that he is still just as bold as he's ever been in Jesus Christ. And we know from the book of Acts, as well as the other epistles, that Paul was extremely bold in his faith. And the words, the phrase, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or death. Paul is saying he's so bold in his faith that he's willing that Jesus Christ be magnified through him, even unto death. Whatever God's will is, Paul is in full submission to it. Even if it means suffering, persecution, or physical death. Verse 21. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And in my opinion, this is the most profound verse in the entire letter. And this should be, as I said, every Christian's view on life. Matthew Henry had this to say about this verse. He says, it is is the undoubted character of every good Christian that to him to live is Christ. The glory of Christ ought to be the end of our life. The grace of Christ, the principle of our life. And the word of Christ, the rule of it. So Paul says to live is Christ. This means that while we are alive, we can live this life for Christ and the furtherance of his kingdom. And this should be our main priority in this life. Yes, Uh, I think I said this last week as well. We are all called to full-time ministry, whether you know it or not. We have a a specific life mission from God. God did not simply send us to earth and place us in a specific family, in a specific country, in a specific, and I say, quote unquote, the race. Um, And I'm using this term that we are familiar with. But from a biblical perspective, there's only one human race. Um, but in any case, and God neither placed us in a specific time, in this specific time of living in today, of technology and comfort and luxury, whatever it is, to just see how it will pan out for us. He placed us here. He placed you where you are, where you find yourself today, because he has a very specific mission for you. That's why uh, if you have a biblical worldview, you should never be ashamed or embarrassed of your demographic or your economic circumstance. But with the same breath, you should also never be too proud or too boastful of it either. God has placed some in poverty for a reason, and he has blessed others with material wealth for a reason. The important thing is that we let the Holy Spirit lead and guide us in fulfilling our individual ministries. So the question is, what is there to gain in death? Speaking from Paul's point of view, which is the point of view, as I said, every born-again believer should have, is... You will be with Jesus when you die. We could stop the list right here, and it will still be more than enough reason. But, of course, there is more, and I will just list a couple of them. Firstly, you are freed from sin. In heaven, there is no sin. So when you die physically, it will release us from the curse of sin that we experience today. And it will release us from our sin nature that we've inherited from the time that Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, and from this curse. Just as a side note, some have a misperception about what the Bible teaches about death. And being without the body when we die is really a temporary state for us as Christians. And I want to touch on these things, as as I said last week, as we go through the scripture, as we go through the various books of the Bible, various chapters by chapter, and verses by verses, so that for, for me, it's very important in these Bible studies to challenge our worldview, mine included, because there are a lot of misperceptions about um, a lot of different topics. So, as I said, being without a body when we die is a temporary state for us as Christians. We will receive glorified bodies or physical bodies when Christ returns. That's very important to note. So another point is there will be no temptation in heaven. That's another thing that will happen when we depart from from this body. You will have no more enemies. You will be delivered from sufferings and persecutions. And there will be no separation from friends. So you will be reunited with all your Christian friends who died before you. And who's going to die after you. And there will be no more tears and sadness. And there's (laughs) there's a lot of that in the world. And there will be no more sickness. Imagine that this whole COVID situation, we know what's going on. Imagine having no more sickness. And then Jesus said, finally, he said, he went to prepare a place for us in John 14, verse three. I think it was the late pastor Chuck Smith that remarked God took six days to create the entire world or create this entire world and everything in it. And as magnificent as it is, even in this fallen state, Imagine, just imagine, Jesus has been gone for 2,000 years or approximately 2,000 years and he's been preparing a place for us ever since. Now, I can't even start to imagine what this place would be like. There's some glimpses in the book of Revelation, but that's for our imagination. So, yes, for a Christian to die is gain and it should not be feared. It's natural, however, to fear the process of death, but not death itself, not for a Christian. And for completeness sake, I want you to be aware of other views of what happens when you die. As I said, this is the time for me also to challenge our worldviews and perhaps things we are unsure about. So there was the one, the one view of death um, is that there was a, there's a theologian named uh, Servetus, which was an opponent of John Calvin. He argued for an idea called soul sleep. And I'm sure you may have heard of this idea before. He argued that the soul leaves the body at death and then awakens in a matter, in a manner of speaking on the day of resurrection. Now, the Seventh-day Adventists and Jehovah Witnesses are among those who hold this view of soul sleep And I will just give you a couple of verses from Scripture that clearly refutes this idea. And it's by no means an exhaustive study on this topic, but it should suffice for the purpose of this Bible study. In Luke 16, verse 22 to 23, we remember we we saw the account of the rich man and Lazarus, which was a was a poor beggar, and this account was given by Jesus himself. So, I mean the the authority, yeah, it's from from God himself. And if you look at the if you look at this story carefully, this was actually not a parable that Jesus was was uh, teaching. He was recounting a true story, and it reads from verse 22, So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Now notice in this verse, in these verses, there is no sleeping or losing of consciousness of the soul between the death of Lazarus and the, and him arriving at Hades. And also remember, this was before Jesus rose from the dead. Therefore, those who died in faith was in a compartment of Hades called Abram's bosom. After Jesus rose from the dead, we, we uh, we know that Jesus overcame death and believers are actually in the presence of the Lord when they die. How do I know this? Remember what Jesus told the criminal hanging on the cross next to him. In Luke 23 verse 43, Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today will be me, be with me in paradise. So I therefore believe that the view of soul sleep is unbiblical. You can do a, a more thorough study on this, but I believe you will come to the same conclusion if you take a, the Bible to be the authority. And then the other idea you may have come across is the idea of purgatory, which is actually taught in the Roman Catholic Church. According to the Catholic Encyclopedia, purgatory is a place or condition of temporal punishment For those who departing from this life in God's grace are not entirely free from venial faults or have not fully paid the satisfaction uh, due to their transgressions. So, in other words, the Catholics believe purgatory is a place a Christian soul goes to after death to be cleansed from sins that was not fully dealt with in that person's lifetime. So, in to further simplify it, what they are saying is that. The perfect and ultimate sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for the sin of all humanity, as Bible teaches, was not enough. That's what they're teaching. So once again, there's no, there's no easy way or or no, uh, what is the word? You know, there, there, there's there's no light way of 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 stating this. I'm not going to once again not offer exhaustive commentary on purgatory. But here's a few verses I think sufficiently refutes it. Um, In 1 John 2 verse 2, it says, and he himself is talking about Jesus here, is the appropriation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. And in Hebrews 7 verse 26 to 27, it reads, for such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's for this. He did once for all when he offered up himself. Now the view that Paul brings across in this verse, uh, we will get to in a couple of minutes again, we will get to another uh, a verse in Philippians 1 verse 23, as well as another idea in, in 2 Corinthians 5 67, but I will, uh, these verses I'm going to read now makes absolutely no room for such a place as purgatory. And I will read the the latter of the two verses because we're going to uh, deal with verse 23 in any case. 2 Corinthians 5 or 6 to 7 says, For we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well-pleased rather to be absent from the body and present from the Lord. So Paul is saying, the same as we read Jesus was saying in the, in the verses I quoted before in relation to soul sleep, that when a believer dies they are immediately in the presence of the Lord. Their language does not allow for any time to experience soul sleep or purgatory. In actual fact I'm just going to say it bluntly I think the idea of purgatory is is heresy. So, Nevertheless, regardless of your views of what happens to a believer once they die if you die an unbeliever, that is the real problem we can like i said we can uh, we can differ on our opinions with regards to soul sleep purgatory although i think it's it's quite clear in scripture what the scripture teaches but if you're not born again if you have not made yet made a decision and commitment to follow jesus christ and to accept him as your personal lord and savior then you should most definitely fear death because death is then not merely dying and physically but it means an eternity separated from God. It means hell. Hades in Greek is, is the temporary um, hell or Sheol in Hebrew. Um, they're, they're both refer to the temporary hell. But Jesus described this place as the place of torment with a rich man begged Abram to allow Lazarus just to dip his finger in water to cool his tongue because he was in agonizing fire and as I said this is only the temporary hell scripture then reveals that there is a final hell Gehenna and that was prepared for the devil and his angels we read of that in Matthew 25 verse 41 however no sin can come before an all holy God that's why God sent his only son Jesus to become the ultimate sacrifice for our sins therefore we can only stand before God if we go through Jesus Christ if we do not go through Jesus we cannot stand before God and then the only place to go is Gena the final L. It was not prepared for humans, however. We read that God wants no one to perish, but all to have eternal life, in John 3, verse 16. So if you have not yet made a decision today, or if you're unsure about whether or not you are truly born again, then I encourage you, and I beg you, please consider doing this now. You can, okay, this is live. If, if you're following live, then you can't stop this Bible study, but go back. Or if you're watching this after the fact, Stop this Bible study and consider this now. It's the most crucial decision you can make in your life. Now we continue in verse 22. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. In scripture, when it makes reference to living in the flesh, it sometimes makes reference to living in accordance to your sinful nature. But in this context, and when we read scripture in context, Paul is talking about physically living on in his earthly body. He's saying that to stay alive on earth will mean that he can do more for the kingdom of God. There There will be more fruit from his labor, in other words, in his ministry God has given to him. And remember, we are not saved by works. We cannot earn our salvation. But true salvation will lead to good works and fruit in our life. And the Bible teaches that. One's works will be judged at the bema, uh, bema seat of Christ, as described in 2 Corinthians 5 10. This is not a judgment as we know it in our sense, where you'll be judged and punished. A punishment will be dished out to you. That happens in a great white throne judgment. That's for un- unbelievers in Revelation 20. The bema judgment is where you are, are and we will be awarded for your good works. In any case, Paul says, he, is, he honestly cannot say whether he will choose death or life. But let's read the next verse to see where his heart actually is. He says in verse 23, For I am hard pressed between the two, having a desire to part and be with Christ, which is far better. And I'm with Paul here. It's clear here that Paul is desiring to be with Jesus. He is saying it is far better. And it is. Of course it is. And especially in today's world, it's far When we look at everything going on around us, it's far better to be with Christ, in my opinion. But he continues in verse 24. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. Now, this is an example of the eternal mindset that Paul had. He says that even though he desires to be with the Lord, he can wait because it is more helpful to be alive for the time being and serve and minister to them. And then being the Philippian church once again, he would obviously be a blessing unto others as well. But he is writing to Philippian church and therefore he's saying it will be a blessing to them. But why is it that he was needed? And I, I think this we can relate back to our situation as well. I'm going to read for you, to you from, verse, uh, from Luke 10, from verse 2. And this is something Jesus said to the 70 disciples he sent out. He said, then he, this is Jesus speaking, said to them, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus said that the harvest is great, but the laborers are few. This was without a doubt true at the time when Paul was writing this letter. But it's certainly and most certainly true today. So we all at times wish that we could be with the Lord at this very moment. Or that the Lord will just return for his church at any time. I mean, when I look at what's going on around us, I wish he could return just (laughs) at any moment. I'm I'm ready. But we need to remember that there are people that are in need of our ministries. Whatever we are called to be in God's kingdom. First and foremost, we need to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with others and tell them how to escape the flames of hell. We need to tell others that this fallen world is not the be-all and end-all, but that we will live on for all eternity. Therefore, the most important thing to consider in this lifetime is where we will spend eternity. That's the most important thing. We all have a part to play in God's kingdom. Whether it is that you have a prayer ministry or whether you work hard to support a foreign missionary or assist with practical tasks at your local church, which will enable your uh, pastors or other people in the church with, the, with who's got the gift of evangelism or teaching or preaching, that they will have more time to be effective in their ministries. But we all have different spiritual gifts and we all have different ministries. If you do not believe me, then listen to what Paul wrote in the book of Romans. I read from, chapters, from chapter 12, verses 3 to 8. He says, For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than you ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having then gifts differing according differing according to the grace that is given to us. Let us use them if prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. you teach us in teaching, you exhorts in exhortation, you gifts with liberality, you leads with diligence, and you so shows mercy, sorry, with cheerfulness. Therefore, never think that it is only the pastor that is called to be in full-time ministry. No, each one of us, each individual member of the body of Christ has been blessed with a measure of faith and spiritual gifts. In other words, we should not consider any believer as having a higher purpose than another believer. All our gifts are equally important. So to are, are our, our ministry is equally important in carrying out Jesus great commission. If you consider the analogy of the body with many members, you can imagine that the loss or the weakened state of even a small member of the body can cause your entire body to be less effective. For instance, if you had to lose your, a foot or a hand, it would most definitely impact the way you go about your daily life. Or if you lose hearing and ear, it would definitely make an impact. I hope I've stressed this enough tonight. Every born-again believer has a very important ministry assigned to them for which they have received a very specific, specific spiritual gift, or more than one, most of us, more than one gift. So if you do not know that you have a ministry, or uh, for that matter, if you do not know that you've got spiritual gifts, I encourage you and, and I implore you to pray about it and to just get busy in God's kingdom. As, as the verse says, the harvest is great, but the labor is of We only need to look at the world around us to realize how desperately people need Jesus. Of course, it's not going to get any better before the return of Jesus Christ, but we should endure and be be faithful on the day that Jesus Christ returns or when we die. Hopefully, we will all experience the, the former. Hopefully, Jesus will come before we die. But now let's get back to the verse in tonight's scripture that we're dealing with at the moment. Notice how Paul also places the need of others ahead of his own desire here. He says, for their benefit. To me, this is significant because Paul is actually practicing what he is preaching. In the next chapter of Philippians, in, verse, in verses 3 and 4, Paul says the following, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out, not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And Jesus in John 15 verse 12 told his disciples that this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Jesus loved his disciples perfectly. He loved humanity to the point where he sacrificed himself as a perfect sacrifice for the sin of the entire world to anyone who would believe. His entire mission on earth was focused on the redemption of mankind. So if we love Jesus, we should strive to love others to the degree that Jesus did. This is to the point where we are willing to suffer for the sake of others. Now let's continue in verse 25. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Now let's break this down a little bit. Being confident of this. There there are differing, differing views about whether Paul had a divine revelation about this or whether he had a word from the government of their intentions with him, or whether he was just convinced that God would preserve his life because his ministry was useful to them. I personally believe that he just had faith that God would preserve him in order to fulfill his ministry. I personally don't think we need to read too much into this. Then the next portion of the scripture is, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith. So Paul sees it as his mission to help them progress in joy and faith. In other words, to disciple them further. He sees that as his mission. Then it goes on that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. He is saying that because he will continue ministering to them, they will rejoice more abundantly, even more abundantly in Jesus Christ. Now, the next couple of verses has the heading in uh, the New King James Version of Striving and Suffering for Christ. Let's read verse 27. It says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. He says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The Greek word from which the word conduct was translated, means to behave as a citizen. In other words, we need to behave as citizens of the kingdom of God, and we need to behave in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. With this in mind, he continues to say that, so that whether I come and see you or, or am absent, so he's highlighting the uncertainty of this actually actualizing, but he wants him to take note and action is the advice that he gives them, regardless of whether he is there or not. He says, I'm a year of your affairs. What Paul is saying is they are accountable to him. In today's, today's life, in today's church culture, we don't like to be accountable to anyone. But this is how it is. We should be accountable to someone. We should should disciple others. Others should disciple us. We should be accountable to others. He continues "That that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. This speaks about unity amongst believers. Paul wanted the Philippian church to remain unified. Unfortunately, I believe this has been one of Satan's great plans to try and sow division within the church. That's why we have so many different denominations today, I believe. And sometimes we argue so much amongst ourselves and about differences in interpretations of some difficult scriptural passages or about other non-essential issues that we really just become less effective for God's kingdom. We become less focused in our great commission as given to us by Jesus himself. And I agree. Yes, I agree. There's where um, really there's significant differences in non-essential issues we should rather worship in separate local churches because of this. However, this doesn't mean that we are not one body of Christ. We are still one body of Christ. If we are truly born again believers, we are one body of Christ. We are still collectively the bride of Christ as well. One thing about theology is this. No, one's, no one person's interpretation of scripture can be the final interpretation of scripture. That's because we are all fallible, firstly and we are all influenced by our cultural context, the way we've, our context of, our our history of growing up, as I said, our demographic where we live, and our privileges, or lack of privileges, or our worldview that's influenced by, by other religions we may have held to before. So, that's why, Everyone's got a different context. But only one person can correctly interpret all scripture. And that person also happens to be God. So when we fellowship, we can lovingly debate about our differences. But we should never let this get in the way of or even take precedence over our collective mission or our co-mission, which is to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That should be priority number one. Verse 28. And not in any way terrified by our adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation. And that from God. So he's saying, and, and not, let, let's break this down once again. The first portion reads, and not in any way terrified by, by your adversaries. So in the early church, and you would know the early Christians had many adversaries or opponents. We read about this throughout the book of Acts. And in Acts 16, we read how Paul and Silas were imprisoned and beaten by rods in Philippi, specifically. The next portion of this verse is, which is to them a proof of perdition. Paul is saying that it is a sign to the persecutors of the Christians that they are on a path of destruction or perdition, as Paul put it in this verse. But to you of salvation and that of God. Paul is saying that if you suffer persecution or opposition, it is a good sign and it's a it's a sort of a litmus test that you are saved by God and are living a life in obedience to Jesus Christ. This is not an absolute, of course. However, it will be highly unusual if you have not encountered any adversaries or opposition or animosity or persecution throughout your work with your walk with the Lord and your service to him in whatever ministry you've been called to. And how can we relate this verse to today? This verse is extremely relevant to our lives, I believe. For some time, there has been a freedom of religion and the practice thereof in South Africa. It was the same in the United States for, for a long time as well, and in other countries. There are other countries where the freedom to practice a religion were allowed for quite some time as well. But this was by far not the norm for the majority of the world. In fact, Christians have been persecuted since the early church age. And there are signs that Our religious freedom is starting to erode more and more in South Africa as well. However, and I don't want to take, and I don't want to downplay that because that's a real, that's a reality. That's a reality in the U.S. as well at the moment and in other parts of the world. Christians are being persecuted more and more. But in South Africa, at least, we still enjoy a level of religious freedom that Christians in Iran and China and other parts of the Middle East could only dream of. In fact, Christians in these countries are being persecuted on a daily basis. And many of those are Christians that are being put to death for their faith. In other words, being martyred. So now in South Africa, we don't face that level of adversaries as in the early church. Or definitely not close anything close to that of the church of Iran, for instance, in this time. But we sometimes act as if we're too scared to simply share the gospel with, other, with another person. We need to remember that God has placed us in this specific circumstance, as I explained earlier for a specific purpose. What are we as professing Christians doing with this freedom that we are experiencing? How are we using it for the furtherance of the kingdom of God? And I would like to encourage each and every person tonight to examine how how you are using your religious freedom. We may not experience this forever. That's why I'm also, there's almost a sort of, there's an urgency in my heart as well about this message. We will not experience this forever, I believe. Let you not, as Paul said in the previous verse, to carry out the Great Commission. I believe Christ's return is imminent. And I think God made the scriptures vague enough so that every generation of believers would expect the imminent return of Christ. But in the same time, I believe he made it so specific that the last generation will know that this return is at hand. And that's why I really believe that we are living in the last generation before Jesus will return. And when you look at the signs of the time as Jesus gave to us in Matthew 24, as well as the other prophecies relating to the time of Jesus' return in the Old Testament Scriptures and the New Testament Scriptures, um, especially in the book of Revelation, there's basically nothing that still needs to happen. The scene is set, so to speak. There's even an Ezekiel 38 uh, 38 and chapter 39 prophecy that speaks about the invasion into Israel, which I don't believe and many don't believe speaks about the time in the great tribulation, but something that will happen before the time. Even everything for that, or most of the things for that is is in place. And most of the things happened this year and towards end of last year, end of last year towards this year. A lot of the things, a lot of the puzzle pieces have fallen into place. But in Matthew 25, Jesus tells the disciples two parables and both these parables are closely related. The one parable is about the wise and foolish virgins where Jesus highlights the nature of his imminent return and that we should always be ready for his return. He ends of that parable by telling his disciples in verse 13. He says watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. And then the next parable was about the talents the Master gave to his servants. It was coins, but it's Interesting that it's also called Talents um, in, English, in an English language. So, and this parable addresses what we have done with the gifts and blessings for God's kingdom that is bestowed upon us. And in this parable, to each of the servants that used the talents they were given to increase their master's worth, their master told them, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. In short, what Jesus is teaching us through these two parables is the following. We don't know that day or the hour in which he will return, he being Jesus. Therefore, we need to be ready for his return. But we shouldn't merely be ready and waiting. We should be ready and be busy using the spiritual gifts and blessings he has bestowed upon us for the furtherance of his kingdom. So imagine Christ were to return at this very moment. Just imagine it. How great would it be to hear these words? Well done, good and faithful servant. Now, if you at this stage feel a slight feeling of panic or a feeling that you're not ready, then I urge you to not wait another minute. Start serving him right where you are in your life. That's a Holy Spirit speaking to you. Verse 29. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Paul goes on to give another reason for not being afraid of the opponents. Nor to be afraid of persecution. He explains that just as God made it possible for them to believe in him. In the same manner, God allowed them the privilege to suffer for his namesake. That's a privilege. Now you may be asking, hang on, how can suffering or persecution be a privilege? Well, let's read a couple of verses together. In Matthew 5, verse 11 to 12. Jesus said, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And in 2 Timothy 2 verse 12, this passage was a saying in the time of the early church. And some believe it was a a hymn or creed. But listen to this. It says, If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Therefore, once again, when faced with defending your your faith in Jesus Christ, even to the point of persecution, and you endure it, it is confirmation of your faith, and others will notice it. You also promise great reward for enduring persecution and suffering for the sake of Christ. Unfortunately, the opposite is not such a great story. It says, if we deny him, he also will deny us deny us. This is some serious stuff right there. Some people come to the point in their lives where they understand the gospel message and they even believe it. Remember I don't know what, I can't remember the verse now, but it says even the demons believe and they tremble. So even the demons believe in Jesus, but it doesn't mean they're saved. So you may even believe or someone may even believe, but they think that they're going to then wait and come to salvation later in their life or on their deathbed or when they are faced with persecution that they will all of a sudden start following Jesus Christ. Firstly, we are not guaranteed that we will even wake up tomorrow morning. Our lives are not in our hands. Secondly, if you are not willing to live for Jesus now, what makes you think that you will be willing to die for Jesus when the time comes? So if you have not yet done so, you need to make a decision now. In 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2, Scripture tells us that today is the day of salvation. Paul wrote this piece of Scripture, and he was quoting Isaiah 49 verse 8, where God is speaking of this time. And I'm going to read 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2. He said, for he says, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. So this was a quoted portion of Scripture from the prophet Isaiah. And then Paul goes on to say, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We are living in that accepted time, the day of salvation. If you have not yet come to a place where you have accepted the Lord Jesus as your Lord and Savior, or if this is the first time you are confronted with this possibility, then grab onto this opportunity with both hands. As I said, you are not guaranteed another chance. You cannot gamble with your eternal destiny. And if you don't, know how to do this. Roman 10 verse 9 to 10 tells us how. It says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is a promise. Verse 10 says, For with a heart one believes unto righteousness and with a mouth confession is made unto salvation. Or put another, even simpler way, it's as easy as A, B, C. It's A, admit you are a sinner. B, believe in your heart that Jesus rose and uh, or that he died and rose from the dead. And see confess with your mouth that Jesus raised Jesus from the dead. Accept Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life. Trust me. It's the most crucial, but also the best decision you will ever make. And I've been on this journey for a while now. And I have to say, I haven't always been that obedient, though. However, I can attest to it. It's the best decision you can make. And the last part of verse thirty to end tonight's study is having the same conflict which you saw in me and now he is in me. So Paul is saying that they that, or that God has ordained them for suffering in the same way he has and which he now was at that stage suffering for the sake of Christ. And Matthew Henry comments on this in the following way. He says it is not simply the suffering but the cause and not only the cause but the spirit which makes the martyr. So tonight's study was about death, the suffering and persecution. And it may have seemed dim at times. But we need to understand that tonight's study highlights the blessed hope and surety that we have in Jesus Christ. Because the tone in which Paul writes this passage is is not a tone of sadness. He is affirming his blessed hope that he has in eternal life. He says it's better to be Whether to be alive or dead, he doesn't know which one's better. So what every one of us need to consider tonight is this. Have you come to a place in your life where you you have accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the personal Lord and Savior of your life? And if you have, are you faithful in the ministry as he has entrusted uh, you with? Or for that fact, do you even know what that ministry is? So these are some of the issues that I would ask you to reflect upon and meditate upon. And that brings us to the end of tonight's study. So I will just end in a a word of prayer. And to my family and friends who have indicated that they want to join on uh, Zoom, we'll do that afterwards. And if you would like to join us for fellowship afterwards on Zoom next week, then please reach out to me on Facebook, reach out to me on YouTube, Or wherever. And we can add it to a WhatsApp group. And then I will invite you to that. I'll invite you to a WhatsApp group. And then I will send the links out in due time. So let's end in a word of prayer. My almighty God and heavenly father. I thank you Lord for your precious and your wonderful word. Your infallible word father. And we thank you that we can hold on to this word. Because we know it is true. We know Lord that. This is not some fairy tale. That was penned down. This is an accurate account and it is a, your divine revelation. A revelation given to men, inspired by the Holy Spirit, outside of this time domain, Lord. So you've in- authenticated it as well. That's why we know it's a truth. And, Father, that's a truth. We are. We are. What is the word? (laughs) We are comforted by the fact, Lord, that, and we know that we have a blessed hope that we will spend eternity with you if we accept you as Lord and Savior. And Father, I ask you that you will reveal to each one of us if you haven't done so yet. And if anyone listening tonight hasn't received that or have explored that possibility, that every one of us has got a personal ministry and specific gifts you've given us in which to fulfill that uh, that ministry. I ask you, Lord, that you will reveal it to us and speak to our hearts through your Holy Spirit. We thank you for everything, Father, and we ask you that you look after everyone that listens to this Bible study. In your precious and wonderful name, amen. So thank you very much for joining me once again, and uh, see you next week.